What does it take to win? What does it take to be a winner? I'm here to answer those questions, and today I'm joined by my old friend Mark Noop. Mark is here just days after a historic win in South Carolina, where he served as campaign manager for Governor Henry McMaster's reelect, winning by the largest margins of any South Carolina gubernatorial candidate in 30 years. So you getting any rest after election day, brother? Barely. Um, today was probably the first day I've woken up since the election with an ounce of energy, but I'm sure I'll, I'll crash um, in a few minutes. I've got a, I've got a coffee to keep me going. Nice. So I read an article, Henry McMaster was the biggest gubernatorial win in South Carolina in 30 years. Is that right? Or 30 years. Yeah, that was a, that was a big win. Um, historic, at least in modern history. So how, how big were the margins? Uh, we won by over 17 points, almost 18. Damn, bro. I mean, I even think, down here, as I was say, even down here uh, with Nancy Mace, you know, in the first congressional district, I thought we'd win by like four, ended up winning by 14%. So, I mean, it really, the red wave might have not have happened across the country, but we certainly had one here in South Carolina. Well, I think, I think if this cycle taught us anything, it's that good candidates and good campaigns matter. I mm-hmm. think running good campaigns, having disciplined candidates, we'll talk about it. And the story I've got for you today, discipline is a big part of it. Um, I think with any candidate that you're talking to, any campaign team, discipline is it, it's usually what separates winners from losers. Um, you know, going into election day here, we uh, I, I think I think I told um, the governor the day before the election I thought we were going to win by 15 points, and I'm usually a pessimist. You know, oh, especially shit. in this business, you have to be looking at problems to to solve them, identify weaknesses and and things. And and it, the data was ridiculous. The polling was really positive going into election day. Um, so you always plan for the worst, but um, but we knew it'd be a pretty good margin. Damn, who was your pollster on this one? Uh, Bryce Cornegie. Oh, Bryce Cornegie. I never heard of him. That's the guy, great. right? Yeah, guys. Yeah, he, uh, he hit the nail on the head with polling. Um, nice. He's a very conservative pollster too, so um, you know, very analytical. He's good. That's I mean, no, it, I mean, obviously, because so many polls we saw across the country were off, and if he was predicting, you know, fourteen or fifteen, and you hit what you hit, that's uh, it's pretty spot on, and that's awesome. Yeah. What do you what do you attribute it to? I mean, what did y'all do different? I mean, was it just the climate? Did you guys have a good ground game? Was it message? What do you, what do you think did it? You know, it's a combination of things. I, I don't think there's one thing to point to in a win like that. You know, we're still, and and one of the many reasons I love Henry McMaster is that he's he's still asking for a ton of analysis. I always do post-election analysis. So even when you win by, you know, 17 points, you're, you're looking at what did we do wrong? What could we have done better? Uh, which is how you keep improving. But I, I think, you know, the ground game was effective. Maybe not quite as expansive as 2020, but it was still, you know, we got creative. Uh, the party did a phenomenal job again. Um, it's turnout, uh, the turnout apparatus was was good. But honestly, Henrik Master is very well liked in South Carolina. His job approval is sky high. He got very high marks on dealing with COVID. And I think a lot of those things carried over to Election Day. Nice. I mean, you can't compare 2022 and 2020 when you had close to $100 million with Lindsey Graham coming in, right? So, I mean, 
it's not fair to even say it wasn't as expansive because you didn't even have like a fraction of that kind of cash to build out your right. game. And, and that'll never happen in South Carolina again. Yeah. Probably and, not and, even a, not even in a presidential year where we have a ground game like like I that. Hope not. It's it's great for business, terrible for the process. So it, I hope it doesn't happen again here. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and everybody loves Henry and he did handle COVID extremely well. I mean, he he really only had to close the state down for what seemed like a couple weeks before he was he was one of the very first governors to open the place back up again. While it seemed like, you know, it was basically like South Carolina and Florida were the only states that were open. And That's you could right. tell because like you can always tell by like the uh, the weddings and the bachelorette parties. <laughs> Everybody was down here in Charleston. Yeah, golf courses were open. Exactly, um, and, and beaches. Yeah, I mean, it, I think in a, a crisis, I mean, it's like, like uh, you know, in, in previous years, governors going through hurricanes, whether they handle it well or not. I think leaders are made in, made in a crisis. Henry excelled. That stuff was in his gut. It wasn't, you know, poll tested on the fly. He was doing the right thing, what he thought was right. And I think history, history shows that, you know, vast majority of Americans think that that was right. And the other thing I saw with Cunningham's campaign that I thought was very weird, I actually talked about it on a previous episode, was how it's almost like when he and his people read polls, they get favorability of an issue confused with uh like priority and, and what issues move people meaning like he'll latch on to an yeah so yeah that's what i'm the word i'm looking for excuse me i haven't had enough coffee yet this morning meaning he'll latch on to an issue that's popular like say mm-hmm. the legalization of cannabis but really in the priority of things nobody gives a shit and it's just not a mover and i didn't see him talking at all about the economy like not once it's a good point. I, you know, I think uh, while he was talking about recreational, obviously medical marijuana has an impact on people's lives in a lot of ways. And and some of those issues were valid to be talking about, but what was moving people to, to go vote and helping them decide on whom to vote that the reality was it was the economy and crime. And then very distant second or third, fourth, fifth issues are, you know, abortion, medical marijuana, sports betting, you know, that the reality is no, nobody's even sitting five. at home thinking, oh no. gosh, I wish we had sports betting. It's, it's holy cow. Like gas costs $4 a gallon. Yeah. And you know, I'm a huge fan of governor McMaster and, and I don't agree with anybody or I don't agree with any single person on everything. You probably don't either. You probably can't name one politician. You agree with hundred percent on everything. My one place I differ from governor McMaster is, is, uh, is medical marijuana. And you know why, because of the story with my mom. And, um, but I would never base my vote on that. Like, that's like, yeah, I'm a massive proponent of it, but that's not even like top 10 issues on, on what I would vote on for, for governor, especially whenever we're heading into a recession and coming off of COVID. So I, I just don't know why he would latch on that issue. It just, when I, when I saw the messaging coming from him, it just didn't make much sense to me at all. But you guys, not to say you guys ran a phenomenal campaign, but also it helped that he ran what I didn't consider a very good campaign. Well, and, and you know, we ended up outspending him uh, two to one on TV. And I, I think some of his TV was was maybe a little misguided. You know, they, they had fun with the campaign. I think they did a good job. But the um, but the reality is, uh, you know, where where they started the, the their TV, you know, maybe I think two or three weeks after we had already 
um, done pretty full saturation on negatives, defining Joe Cunningham first uh, before he had an opportunity to define himself. He he came out swinging on issues, um, you know, saying he was going to eliminate the income tax. I don't think anybody believes mm-hmm. that a Democrat who voted with Nancy Pelosi 90 percent of the time is going to eliminate your yeah. income tax. It was ridiculous. Nobody, I um, didn't hear one Republican talking about that and believing that. Not one. And, the, and there's no I, I think, you know, you and I, we've worked together in the past. I think we we share the same view here. You've got to tell stories mm-hmm. on a campaign. What was Joe Cunningham's story to the, you know, 75 percent of South Carolinians who had never seen him before this general election? 100 percent. And then that Hail Mary in like the last 48 hours about how he was going to have a bipartisan cabinet. It's like, <laughs> it's like what was that about, dude? In a state without party registration. So I guess what what is he going <laughs> to ask them to swear an oath? I'm a Republican. OK, you can come work for me. Well, you said you got, you know, you outspent them two to one. That's fascinating because I think the biggest problem, if you're following me on Twitter right now, I've been complaining about it for six months. And I was one of the people saying the red wave wasn't going to happen because of how Democrats were raising so much more money and outspending Republicans across the country. And like, it doesn't matter what Donald Trump's saying or what the Supreme Court's doing on abortion if you're getting outspent three to one. I mean, that's just fundamentals on campaign. Money, money wins. You know, in Atlanta and Georgia, I'm sorry. Uh, Warnock has outraised us three to one um, in the general. And then I saw, you know, Oz was outspent two to one, Laxalt uh, two to one, Masters about three to one. And so it's fascinating that you guys were able to raise so much money and beat him two to one, because I bet that's one of the only few case studies where the Republicans actually did a really good job raising money and outraised the Democrat. We got outspent by tens of millions of dollars across the country. I mean, like, like you're seeing in Georgia, um, you know, what, what is the solution to that? I, I don't know, um, but it's got to involve long-term thinking because the Democrats have spent 20 years building Act Blue, and they have trained their donors to give monthly, recur- if not monthly, recurringly, like paying a water bill or an electric bill, and, mm-hmm. and Republicans just don't do that. Republicans, as we saw with Lindsey Graham and with Herschel now, because Herschel's raising a ton of money, they only give when there's a need to give. And whenever everybody was on Fox News during the summer talking about red wave, red wave, red wave, our our donations were just paltry, man. Nobody was giving. And then as soon as Mitch McConnell came on and said, we're not going to take back the Senate, I don't know if you remember him doing that a few months ago, all of a sudden our donations started skyrocketing. So um, you know, the first thing is how do we build a low-dollar donation uh machine that's going to take a long time, multiple cycles, to train our low-dollar donors to keep giving. The second thing is we've just had this habit of just burning up the same lists over and over. And you know that because you'll get 12 texts a day and 35 emails because we're just going back to the same pool of people when we need to figure out how do we grow the pool of people. And the best I've ever seen at it, honestly, and I was talking to Garrett at WinRed, um, who owns WinRed, um, or I guess he doesn't own it, but CEO started when red he said one of the best in the country is actually Lindsey Graham because he goes on Fox news. And if you've seen him with Herschel, it's, uh, you know, what are we going to do about Russia? Well, you got to go to her, you know, team Herschel.com. <laughs> and he did the same thing with Lindsey Graham.com. And Garrett told me that Lindsey was one of the very few people that were, was growing 
the pot of small dollar donors instead of just hitting the lists over and over and over because he's making those appearances. He's going to events and he's urging people to give rather than just hitting lists over and over and over and over again. So we got to find a solution to it, man, because if not, I don't see how we ever win races again if we're going to get outspent two to one, three to one, four to one. Well, you have to you have to have a sense of urgency. To your point, I think with Lindsay, you know, that was a that was a crazy time to be alive with Jamie Harrison raising five plus million dollars a day at, at one point. Um Lindsay, Lindsay was not afraid to go on TV to to do some web videos or whatever saying, We're in trouble. We need your help. Like this yeah. is urgent and we're getting outspent. I remember I think the largest fundraising day of the entire campaign for Lindsay, and we raised something like five million in one day. Mm-hmm. And we found out later in disclosures that while we thought it was a record, Jamie Harrison that same day raised, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars more than us. Yep. Um but you know, Lindsay's good at that. It's a compliment to the team. I know you were you were involved in that, Scott Farmer yep. and Terry Spicer. Uh, but yeah. Lindsay understands it on a different level. A lot of folks are afraid to go out there and say, I'm in trouble. I need your help. We're losing. We're, you know, we're, we're running out of money. Um, you mm-hmm. know, and, and the governor's race is, it was a little more of a balancing act of, uh, you know, making sure that we were telling our house files, telling our inside ball folks that we need your help. We're running against a former congressman. He's a prolific fundraiser and this race could get competitive. Um, and making sure that wasn't a pervasive talking yeah. point outside of that inside ball crowd, because, you know, you didn't want what happened in other states where we just got outspent by gazillions of dollars. Yeah. And, you know, we got uh, so Scott Farmer Campaign Solutions had on Lindsay. We got Scott Farmer and Campaign Solutions again on Herschel and we raised 10 million over the weekend. And if I'm not mistaken, you guys use campaign solutions for low dollar fundraising too, right? right? I think they're the best in the country. Honestly, they're, they're really good. But yeah. anyway, man, enough about that. Congratulations, man. I'm proud of you. You kicked, you kicked ass on that one. It's hard to, uh, it's hard to beat biggest margins in 30 years. So that's, that's pretty <laughs> badass. You deserve it. So anyway, premise of this podcast is to just tell me a story and some lessons learned, man. You've been running races for a long time. Yeah, so um, we'll kind of talk about two campaigns that were going roughly at the same time back in 2016. Um, I was uh, I had recruited a candidate for uh, Congress in uh, North Carolina um, at the same time was running some legislative races in South Carolina in, in the spring of 16 and, and some in primaries. Um, I had essentially embedded in North Carolina for this this period of time uh, for this quick congressional race. We were running against Robert Pittenger in North Carolina's ninth district. It was a hotly contested race. Um, we were very close in margins. Uh, the candidate didn't believe that we were that close. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of, I, I don't want to say threw in the towel, but kind of, um, you know, a little yeah. too early, maybe a month out. And we were, you know, screaming from rooftops. You've got to re-engage. You've got to go raise some more money. We've got to put more on TV. Um, I think we ended up getting outspent five or six to one in that race. Shit. We we lost by 132, 137 votes somewhere in there um, out of about 20, 29,000 cast. And it was it was soul crushing for a lot of reasons. I mean, anytime you lose a race by that kind of a margin, it's it's a gut punch. When you lose by that kind of margin, when when, you know, the candidate lacked some discipline and understanding of you know, where we were, he didn't really trust the plan, I don't think. Um, and you lose that race. I think in the process, what was also kind of soul crushing is is that the candidate may not have been 
the the best person to work for, maybe not the best person for the seat. Yeah. Um, you know, fast forward two years after that, as he he uh, had to abdicate the seat for election fraud that he had perpetrated knowingly. And um, but but when we wrapped up that campaign in uh, early May of 2016. I went, uh, you know, all in on Scott Talley state Senate race up in Spartanburg and Greenville against Lee Bright. So Lee Bright was famously the guy in the state Senate who wanted to, he led the effort to keep up the Confederate flag. He led the effort against Nikki Haley accepting Syrian refugees in South Carolina. Um, he, uh, he wanted to create South Carolina's own currency based on the gold standard, mm-hmm. just crazy stuff. And, and a hateful guy um, didn't give the district a seat at the table um, and going in to work with Scott Talley was kind of the opposite of, of uh, the North Carolina race. Um, yeah. Scott's a phenomenal human being. His family is amazing. He's honest as the day is long. Mm-hmm. Um, he's unafraid to, to speak his mind, even when, you know, the base may disagree with them. Um, and he's extremely disciplined. Um, we left about a hundred thousand dollars in the bank going into the runoff. Um, you know, had a pretty tense primary night when we we beat the third place guy by about four points, which was one of those gut check moments that yeah. you know, well, shoot, we've got we've got enough in the bank to fully saturate TV, send a few mail pieces like that. However, are we gonna get there? Uh, which was terrifying. Um, we get into the runoff. Um, you know, anybody running against Lee Bright knows that he's going to throw the kitchen sink at you. It's nasty. Um, He'll lie about you. I mean, the amount of mail pieces that didn't have any, you know, sources cited and accusing Scott Talley of the worst possible things you can imagine um, as well as on TV. And Scott had the discipline to, I mean, there aren't a lot of people who can, you know, read that stuff about themselves, know their kids are seeing that on TV. They're seeing it in mailboxes. They're hearing it on the radio um, and just laugh it off go about your business and focus on what you can control as a campaign. And there were even days where I'm like, Scott, we got to go do a press conference. We got to do a cease and desist and this, that he's like, no, 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 it's going to, it's going to help us as much as it's helping him. You know, Nikki Haley came in in the runoff uh, to endorse and we had the other uh, two candidates from the primary come in and endorse. Mm -hmm. Um, And right outside this facility, it was in a, a Greer at a manufacturing facility. It's on private property and they, they've got, you know, stakes driven into the ground with signs that that says Haley and Tally for Muslims. Um, <laughs> they had a truck circling the parking lot with a big bright. You know, 10 foot Confederate flag flying behind it. Um, you know, Scott was unabashedly opposed to the Confederate flag being up at the state house, as was Nikki. Um, he uh, he was for the gas tax increase. Uh, before it was cool to be for the gas tax increase mm-hmm. um, in a very conservative district, stuck to his guns, ran a good campaign. Um, you know, even even as as calm as I, I like to think I am in, in tough races like that, Scott was calmer. He's he's a steady hand yeah. at the wheel. He has the discipline to know the plan is working. We're going to be fine. Um, he also knows, you know, when to say when. And, okay, all right, the plane's not quite working. Let's adjust a little bit. Um, but he worked his butt off. He probably hit five, six thousand doors himself, um, and we won. Um, did the same thing a few years later. But what it sort of taught me were, were two things. Um, 
and this is, you know, six years ago, it's, it's not like it's a lifetime ago, but it did teach me um, a lot about the business. And one was, you know, leaving North Carolina, it would have been easy to get cynical, would have been mm-hmm. easy to say, you know, this guy sucks. He's dishonest. Um, this was a horrible experience, kept me up at night. It would have been easy just to to leave it and say, you know, I, I can't do this anymore. Or, you know, everybody in this business is terrible. Yeah. At the same time, it showed an undisciplined candidate versus a disciplined candidate. And both were in very tight races. Um, the one in North Carolina easily should have won um, had he stayed disciplined. Um, kept running through the tape, just like any sport, you know, you don't give up because you're down. I was just about to say that, you know, I'm a big endurance guy. And and of course these um, like marathon or triathlon videos that pop up on Instagram occasionally where like the guy starts celebrating, you know, 10 yards out from the finish line and someone like blows past him. Happens all yeah. the time. Yeah. And in, in politics, anything can happen. And I think when you get closer to the election, I mean, you have to close strong. Everybody, um, Everybody talks about that, but until you're there, maybe you don't really know what it means. Um, you know, you have to keep adding to TV. You have to keep making calls. You have to, I mean, I remember in, in the North Carolina congressional race, I had, uh, I think about 1800 undecided, identified undecided for him to call personally and for him and his wife to call, didn't make a single one. Yeah. And when you lose by 130 some odd votes, I mean, that that's uh, that's a tough pill to swallow um, that really you're that is. close. Um, whereas, you know, Scott ran through the tape even when, you know, our, our polling was showing and our polling was showing every day that we were we were we had a lot of attrition. I mean, we were losing votes from all that negative, you know. So I got to tell a quick story now, too, since we're we're on this one. You cleaned up my mess. Because you, you you did you know why well so um you know obviously I have a, a national digital firm here in South Carolina I still occasionally GC races and I'm like I'm good at different things but like my real thing that I pride myself on being good at are state senate races and you know I yep. still do all the IE work for the Senate Republican Caucus and my win record is phenomenal on those races I, I'll never go to you and say I'm the best to run your city council or mayor's race or even a congressional race or U.S. Senate race. But when it comes to the state Senate races, I always, that's my thing. I love the South Carolina State Senate. And I've lost two big races, one uh, because of a favor here uh, pretty recently or in the last couple of years. But the one that's always haunted me was Scott Talley and Lee Bright the first time because mm-hmm. Scott ran. Uh, so Scott, uh, for our listeners don't know, was a very young member of uh, the state house, one of the youngest to ever serve. And by the way, Kelly and I were pages together. So I've known him f- since I was, you know, 19, 20 years old. Scott had me run his state Senate race against Lee Bright and we lost. And there were a lot of reasons why we lost. And we could talk about it on a different podcast when I tell my full story. Um, but then I, at that point, am running the day-to-day of the Senate Republican caucus and Lee Bright becomes a member. And that that fucker gave me hell for years and did everything he could to screw with me, did everything he could to screw with Harvey Peeler. And he was just a thorn in my side. And the fact that I lost to him and look, sore losers suck. Sore winners are way worse. And the fact that he was such a sore winner, he was always screwing with me, always screwing with Harvey. And the fact that Scott and Kelly tally are such amazing human beings. And I didn't win that one for him. It, it drove me crazy for years and years until you went in 
and then corrected my mistake and whipped Lee Bright's ass. Well, it, it hurts. And Lee, I mean, he uh, he's he, I think this was in March of 16. He, he was quoting the state newspaper saying, when I win, there will be a reckoning. So everyone who who went against him, he was threatening everyone of what he was going to do. He was the 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 worst of the worst. He, you know, the the guy who who screams from rooftops about the corrupt establishment and and he was probably one of the worst offenders in the general assembly as well. So um I that was a rewarding experience beating Lee Bright, helping Scott Talley get in there and and especially in contrast to the North Carolina race which was soul crushing. Um you know, I realized again within the span of a month why I do this and you know there are obviously way many uh, enough other ways to make money um yeah that's less stressful and difficult um other than politics uh but but that's fun as hell it's rewarding um you know and, and especially somebody like Scott who deserved to be there mm-hmm. um, the district deserves somebody like him and the state's benefited from it. I mean, he probably single-handedly got the most DOT reform in 80 years done. Um, you know, it's just, uh, it's a rewarding experience. And a lot of folks, um, in this business, obviously everybody's got to go make a living. Um, and, and we're, we work to, to make a living, but, um, but you don't always have to work for people you don't like. But now, so, so Scott's not going to run again. So are we going to have to see the reemergence of Lee Bright? Have you heard anything about that? I hope not. Um, I th- I think we'll be fairly prepared if if that comes up again. You know, Mark Lynch, who ran against him in 2020, was was uh, you know very similar candidate, uh, maybe even a little less serious than Lee Bright, um, and that was a very another very expensive, difficult win. Um, so I think regardless of who it is, you know, maybe the district has gotten a little more favorable for a good level-headed Republican to win it than it yeah. was before because of redistricting. But um, I, I think it'll be fine. The people in the district saw the contrast where, you know, Lee Bright passed one bill and uh, in eight years. And in the first year, Scott Talley passed, I think, three or four. So but I also think you're going to have about 10 to 12 people running for that congressional seat up there. Quite. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. That, yeah, that, that that might take a whole hour to explain that yeah. controversy, but I think you're going to see a primary if he runs again. Uh, if the con- if, if Congressman Timmons runs again, um, I think you're going to it's going to be a free for all. It will. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it's it's such a conservative district. It's got it's gotten even more compact, though. I, I mean, I, I hope it's clean. Um, I hope the best for William. That's all I gotta say. <laughs> no, we don't need to dive into it. Brother, yeah. man. God, that was a huge win. So congratulations. Yeah. Thank all you. All right, man. Ho- hope you're Thank- doing well. Good talking uh, to you. Oh yeah, yeah. Things are things are great down here. Get down to Charleston. Let's go have some drinks. All about it.